please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for May 19th, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is the Herbert S. Hanley Professor in the Brown School of Social Work and the Department of Sociology at Washington University, Mark Rank. Professor Rank is an expert on poverty studies and the author of notable books such as One Nation Underprivileged, Why American Poverty Affects Us All, and Chasing the American Dream, Understanding What Shapes Our Fortunes. His most recent book, published in March of 2021 by Oxford University Press, is Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty, which he co-wrote with professors Lawrence M. Eppard and Heather E. Bullock. In it, they identify and analyze common myths about poverty, compare poverty levels in the United States with other developed nations, and how to reduce it. We spoke with Professor Mark Rank on May 14th, 2021. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor Mark Rank. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, Joy. Thanks for having me on. Your most recent book, Poorly Understood, What Americans Get Wrong About Poverty, co-written with Lawrence M. Eppard and Heather E. Bullock, has just been published by Oxford University Press. In it, you enumerate myths about poverty in the United States and propose ideas on how to reduce it. Before we get to the myths, let's establish how you're defining poverty. That's a great place to start. And one can define poverty in a number of different ways. But Pretty much the way that we define it throughout the book is if individuals either fall below the official poverty line or very near the official poverty line. So what we do in the United States in terms of measuring poverty is we draw a line in terms of a household's annual income. And we say, if you fall below that level of income, you're in poverty. If you're above that level, you're not in poverty. And just for this past year, the poverty line for a family of three was around $22,000. So if that family was earning less than that, We would count them as in poverty, and again, above that, they would not be in poverty. The other thing that we do in the book is we also talk about folks that are in poverty or near poverty, so maybe about 150% of the poverty line, something like that. So that's pretty much how we define it, although, again, there, there are many ways to think about how we might measure poverty. Well, for example, you sometimes mention the relative poverty measure. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would that be? Yeah, so that's another way of, of looking at poverty, and that's a way that we do use in the book when we compare the United States to other countries. And the most common um, relative measure of poverty is to say, how many folks in a particular country fall below 50% of the median income? So in the United States, let's say median income, uh, annual income was around $60,000. If families fell below $30,000 in this measure, they would be counted as poverty. If median income went up to 70000 then it would be folks falling below 35000 But the advantage of this measure, as I mentioned, is that you can make comparisons across countries using this. And so we do use this measure again when we were looking at how the United States fares compared to other countries. There's so many different ways to do statistics, and I won't even quote the damn lies part of that. (laughs) But uh, so median 
as opposed to average. Like average yeah. would be if you put yeah. the billionaires in the pile. So what, right. just a right. little bit more about what is what is median. Yeah. Yeah, and median is something that a lot of times you do want to use because just as you pointed out, the average an average can be really skewed by real outliers. So if we think of income and we're looking at average, we're throwing in Bill Gates and Bezos and, and, and all of these folks that have really, really high incomes. That will raise the average up. What the median is, is the point at which 50% of people fall above that point and 50% below. And it's it's often used because it, it's more representative of the overall picture for something. And so median income is something that, that's used a lot, and, and we use that in the book as well. I think it's a more representative statistic than average is. Okay, so the first part of the book, you and your co-authors enumerate these myths and let's begin with the myth of who actually are the poor. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's a good place to start. And that's, uh, that's where we start in the book is the question of who are the poor. And I think the myth that's out there for a lot of people is that the poor and poverty really affects somebody else, some other group, not me and not my group. And so we walk through several chapters where we look at aspects of this. And the first chapter that we focus on is the myth that, oh, again, poverty will happen to somebody else and not to me. Well, I've been doing research for a number of years, actually uh, uh, 20 years, on the question of what's the lifetime chance of an American experience poverty? So when we think about poverty, we often think about, oh, how many folks fall into poverty in any given year? But this question is, what's the likelihood across your adulthood of at some point experiencing poverty? And it turns out that a clear majority of Americans at some point in their lives will experience poverty. So between the ages of 20 and 75, 60%, close to 60% of Americans will experience one year below the official poverty line, which was what we were talking about earlier. And three quarters of Americans will experience either poverty or near poverty. So this first idea that poverty is never going to happen to me is actually clearly a myth that for a majority of Americans, poverty is going to touch them at one point or another. And people often ask me, they say, why are those statistics so high? And the answer is because we're looking over a long period of time and what happens to people are events that they didn't anticipate. So things like losing a job or getting sick or a family splitting up or experiencing a pandemic, all of these things have the potential to throw people into poverty. And when they occur, there's not a lot to protect folks from falling into poverty. And so that's the reason why when you look over a long period of time, these numbers are actually quite high. Another myth is about where are the poor? And I was actually quite surprised by the, your findings. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's another sort of myth about who are the poor. And the image that we often have is, oh, poverty is really confined to inner city neighborhoods that are high in poverty and that are largely folks of color. So it turns out that there actually are more people in poverty in the United States today living in suburbs than there are in central cities. And it turns out that some of the most deep-seated poverty 
is in rural America. So Appalachia, the Deep South, other areas as well. And so the, the, the way to think about this is that where people live in terms of poverty is quite spread out. It turns out that only about 10 to 15 percent of folks in poverty actually live in high poverty neighborhoods. Most folks in poverty do not live in such neighborhoods. They live in various places, perhaps down your street or in basically any community. So that's another myth that we sort of lay out is that, oh, poverty is just confined to a certain geographical areas. It turns out that American poverty can be found just about anywhere. If we compare poverty in rural America versus urban America, it turns out that poverty rates are actually somewhat higher in rural America. And as I said, there are certain areas in the rural United States that have really, really high rates of poverty. Those areas all have kind of a different historical background to them. So in Appalachia, you have a high extent of white poverty. And this is an area, as you know, defined by coal mining was there. It's now pretty much gone away. You have poverty poverty in the Deep South and the Mississippi Delta, which is largely African-American poverty. And that has a historical background in terms of slavery and sharecropping and so on. You've got a lot of poverty on the Texas-Mexican border, which is largely Hispanic. You've got extremely high poverty rates in the plains on American Indian reservations. Actually, those have the highest rates of poverty of any area in the United States. And then finally, You've got a lot of high poverty in the central corridor of California, the agricultural region, which is really defined by migrant labor and folks really not earning a lot of income at all. And so, yes, rural America really has some high rates of poverty. And I don't want to say that central city areas also have high rates of poverty. But again, what we need to keep in mind is that the image of poverty that we have needs to be expanded. We need to think about this idea that the reach of poverty is actually really, really wide. So you've brought up racial and ethnic aspects to this. And I think many listeners may be surprised if we actually go into that. Media has led us to believe that it's racial minorities who are the most, the greatest number of the poor. What has your research found, Professor Rank? Yeah, so there's two ways to think about this question. The first way is to say, who's at a greater risk of experiencing poverty? And if we ask that question, then clearly non-whites are at a much greater risk of poverty than whites. So the poverty rate for blacks versus whites is double. For Hispanics, it's, it's double. As I mentioned before, for American Indians, it's more than double. So that's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is who right now is in poverty? What's the composition of the poverty population? And if we ask that question, then the largest racial group in poverty are whites. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is because whites compose a larger percentage of the population. So even though their rates of poverty are somewhat lower, the fact that they're a larger percentage of the population means that they're going to comprise a pretty significant proportion of the poor population. And so for this past year, it turns out that two-thirds of those who are in poverty 
put down white as their racial category. So again, we, we need to keep both of those images in mind, but that certainly goes against what I'm talking about right now, really goes against the idea that, oh, everybody in poverty are non-whites, particularly Black Americans. It turns out that they're a relatively small percentage of the overall poverty population. So much of the approach to poverty in the United States is based on the economic system that's been created here with its historical and religious roots. So I was particularly glad that one of the myths addressed is a quote attributed to Jesus, most often (laughs) taken out of context, the poor will always be with you. In fact, as you point out, Professor Rank, he was saying exactly the opposite of what is usually considered to be the message, namely, oh, there isn't anything to be done, the poor will always be with you. I wonder if you would read the actual pertinent passage from your book, Poorly Understood. It's on page 64. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So we have that quote that's used over and over to sort of make the argument that, well, there's really nothing you can do about it. And then, as I, as we say, ironically, if we place the quote from Jesus into its wider context, the meaning becomes quite different. And so this is from Deuteronomy, where Jesus says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor— In any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brothers, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. For the poor you will always have with you in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And Yes, you're absolutely right in that the, the meaning of that is is opposite of, of the way that it has often been interpreted. And so in that particular chapter, what we argue is that poverty, in fact, is not inevitable. And we have many, many examples, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the, in the next few minutes. We have many examples, both within the United States and within other countries, in which we can do a lot to reduce poverty, maybe not to completely eliminate it, but certainly to reduce it substantially. So this idea that the poor you will have with you always has really been misinterpreted. So are there any other myths that we should address before we go on to the rest of this story? Oh, well, yeah, I think there's there's plenty of myths. I mean, one of them that I think is really central to this whole idea, and I think it's really central to why we in the United States really do so little to address poverty, and that is sort of getting at why are folks in poverty? And the big myth out there in the United States is that, well, They're just not working hard enough. They're lazy. They're not motivated. They've made bad decisions. Basically, we look to understand poverty as an individual failing. And the argument that I and my co-authors make in the book is that actually the way to understand poverty is not as an individual failing, but as a structural failing. Now, what does that mean? That means that there's a problem on both the economic and the political levels that result in high rates of poverty in the United States. Well, what are some of those things? First of all, there are many, many jobs. We've been producing a lot of jobs in the United States that are low-wage jobs, as we're all aware. 
So it turns out that about 40% of all jobs in the United States are considered low-paying jobs, less than $16 an hour. So you can be working full-time, and many people are working full-time, but they're still not able to make it. That's a problem on the structural level. That doesn't have anything to do with individuals not working hard. It has to do with not enough jobs that pay a decent wage. So we really need to shift our thinking from sort of this idea that the individual is at fault and it's their responsibility for being in poverty to the idea of there's something structurally wrong here. We need to address those structural failings. Well, let's go into that a little more deeply because policies have been created that not only allow this to happen, but almost promote it. What comes to mind is what you were saying about people working full time. Well, many of them are actually working several part time Mm -hmm. jobs and working instead of only 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, etc. I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. Why don't you take it from there, Professor Rank? Yeah, so that that's absolutely the case. So as I said, we've been producing more and more low-wage jobs, but we've also been producing more and more part-time jobs. And so just as you correctly point out, there are many people who are working a couple of these part-time jobs trying to piece together a basic standard of living, but they're not able to. And the other thing in terms of jobs is that more and more jobs today do not have the kinds of benefits that they used to have. So the most obvious one is is healthcare, but many of these jobs don't have uh, retirement benefits or vacation pay or things like that. And here's one way to kind of understand that really, I would make the argument that since the 1970s, early 1970s, there's been real economic stagnation for most of the of the population. The top 20%, 10, 5%, 1% over this period of time have done fine, have actually done quite well, especially at the, at the high end. But for most people, they've not been getting ahead. And here's a statistic that shows that. And this gets to the median question that we were looking at in the beginning. Median wages for men working full-time once you control for inflation, were slightly higher in 1973 than they are today. So in other words, over almost a 50-year period, in terms of wages, men working full-time have actually fallen somewhat behind. That's a staggering statistic. And that gets at, again, what I'm talking about in terms of thinking about these issues as a structural failing. And one of the things that we can talk about in a little bit, I'm sure, is that this is reflective in the growing inequality that we've seen in the United States, really beginning since the early 1970s. One of the things that comes to mind is over the last 10 years or so, as politics between political parties have become more and more polarized, is the use of the word socialism to shut down any arguments at all trying to address any of these kind of issues. And what's usually meant is helping out individuals. However, the structure remains, and I'll use Walmart as an example, which is notorious for only allowing part-time work at very low wages, and then the, oh, what do they refer? Oh, they have a word for their employees. Oh, they're, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I can't think of it right now. I can't either, but I know what you're talking about. Associates. 
they then apply for all sorts of assistance, what we used to call food stamps, Medicaid, all these things. So that is, in fact, a form of socialism. But who's benefiting from it? It's the corporation. You don't address this in your book, but a similar thing was with the tariffs, the agricultural tariffs, and the huge amounts of money that went to very large corporate farms, another form of socialism. So anyway, that's that's a tangent, which I don't need to explore further. But it does bring up a question that you raise in the book, and that is, who benefits from such a large percentage of our population in poverty? Yeah, so we get to the kind of the end of the book and, and we sort of say, okay, we've shown you, we've walked through these different chapters dealing with all these different myths and the empirical evidence, the research evidence shows that none of these myths hold water, that they're, that they're all stereotypes and myths and so on. And so the question then that we ask is, well, if that's the case, how come these myths continue? Why do they persist? And one of my co-authors is a psychologist, Heather. And in this chapter, she deals with some of the psychological reasons for this. You know, the idea of stereotypes and confirmation bias and the kinds of things that we often do. When we have a worldview, we only kind of look at things that confirm that worldview. And she deals with some of those psychological things. But I deal with the more sociological things. And I ask this question, who then is benefiting from these myths. It's sort of like you follow the money <laughs> to sort of look at the, the the source of a problem. So who's benefiting from these myths? And the argument I make is that several groups have really benefited. The most obvious one, I think, are political actors, politicians. So Ronald Reagan was notorious for using images of the welfare queen and lazy welfare recipients to score political points and really to kind of move some of those blue-collar Democrats into his ledger when he was running in, in 1980 and 1984. Bill Clinton certainly played on the idea of the welfare stereotype by ending welfare as we know it. Donald Trump certainly played on welfare stereotypes as well. So these political actors have used these myths to their advantage. But then another group is those who have really benefited from these economic changes over the last 50 years. Because if you believe in these myths, then basically the answer is, well, you just need to get your own house in order if you're in poverty. You just need to work harder. We don't need any structural changes. We don't need any changes in tax policy or anything like that. Well, that's a very convenient argument to keep things the way they are to remain with the status quo. And so I argue that folks who have really benefited, it's to their advantage also to perpetuate these myths. And I don't want to argue sort of conspiracy theory and people are getting together and behind closed doors and sort of thinking about this. But I think it, I think you can make a pretty strong case that there are certain people who have really benefited and certain players who have really benefited from the perpetuation of these myths. And, and then, as you're pointing out, the, this whole idea that if you ever try to address some of these things, you're called a socialist and and this kind of thing, which, again, is is sort of playing on these overall myths and stereotypes. Well, it's interesting, not just socialist, but you're called a communist, but that does not have the same impact on younger people. Mm -hmm. It's largely the older population that seems to be triggered by those words. 
But you did bring up the Ronald Reagan welfare mm-hmm. queen thing. And one of the myths is that of welfare fraud. And you yeah. address that, Mark Rank, in your yes. book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. Let's talk about welfare fraud and what your research has shown you. Yeah, so that is certainly one of the myths that people that are, that are on a welfare program, fraud is rampant. People are living the good life. They're scamming the system and so on. And there's lots of different ways to show that this is not the case. I mean, I'll just start with one. I mean, I've talked with hundreds of people who are receiving welfare programs, are in poverty, and almost to a person, it's like they are just struggling to survive. This is not a good life kind of thing. But we can also look at how much actual fraud occurs in these programs. And it turns out that all the research shows that the amount is very, very small. Sometimes people make mistakes, and oftentimes that that is definitely corrected. But the amount of fraud is very, very small in terms of people actually scamming the system. I think one of the things that I point out is that actually, if you want to talk about fraud, look at folks paying their taxes. It's estimated that about 20% of people aren't paying the amount that they should be paying in taxes. So there you have kind of the overall population where actually you might want to address that. And actually, I think President Biden, with providing more resources to the IRS, is going to address that. But going after fraud and welfare programs is just, it's very, very minor. I guess I would also compare it to this whole idea of fraud in voting. We know, Joy, that uh, there's hardly any evidence at all that people are double voting. I mean, it's hard enough to get people to vote in the first place. And to make the argument that, oh, yeah, people are going to several different locations to vote is just there's no evidence at all. It's like a handful of people out of hundreds of thousands that might be doing that. So it's another example of something that gets so much attention, and yet there's so little there to really substantiate that claim. Now, you've mentioned the structural changes since about the 1970s. And one of those big changes is that the U.S. economy has gone from one very highly industrialized to one that is what's euphemistically called service. And this brings up what I think is a wonderful metaphor that you use about jobs being like a game of musical chairs. Expand on that, please. Yeah. So that's, I I do think that that's a really good analogy that kind of allows people to understand what we're talking about here. The analogy is this, that if we think about a game of musical chairs, let's say here in the room, we have 10 players and eight chairs and players circle around, music stops, people scramble for a chair, two people are going to lose out. So We can say, well, who loses out in that game? Well, if we want to focus on the specific losers, we can say, well, maybe they weren't as fast or they weren't as agile or they were in a bad position when the music stops. But if we step back and we say, wait a minute, let's focus on the question of why the game produces losers in the first place, then it really doesn't matter what the characteristics of the losers were, given that two people were going to lose out. So we could make everybody twice as fast, but there still are going to be two people that lose out. And the argument that we make is that we're playing a large-scale version of musical chairs in the United States. Basically, what we have are 10 players, but only eight chairs. If we think of the chairs as kind of being good-paying jobs. And so who's going to lose out at that game of getting a good job that can 
prevent them from going into poverty? Well, it's going to be folks with probably more skills, more education, maybe in a neighborhood that has more opportunities and so on. And we can point to those reasons for why those folks have lost out. But given the fact that there aren't enough decent paying jobs, then somebody is going to lose out. And those characteristics only define who loses out at the game, not why the game is producing losers in the first place. And that's where we get to the structural failings. The game is set up such that some people are going to lose. And what we do in the United States is we focus over and over on trying to change the characteristics of who loses out at the game, but we never focus on changing the structure of the game. And the argument that I make is that when we do focus on changing the structure of the game, that's when we see changes in the overall rates of poverty. So for example, in the 1960s, poverty rate in the United States in 1959 was 22%. By 1973, it was 11%. It was cut in half, dramatic reduction in poverty. Why was that? Two main reasons. The economy was really strong and we started a war on poverty. This is an example of changes on a structural level that have really had an impact or had an impact on reducing poverty. It didn't have to do with people working harder or working less. That, that, that remained constant. It was the fact that there were more chairs available to folks who were playing the game. The other example that I'll use to, to sort of illustrate this is poverty amongst the elderly. So in 1959, the rate of poverty for those above 65 and older was around 35%. And today it's around 9 or 10%. Now, why is that? There's only really one reason. It's Social Security and Medicare. That has had a dramatic impact, a structural impact on reducing poverty amongst the elderly. So it's estimated that if we didn't have those programs today, the poverty rate for the elderly would go from 9% to about 40%. So and this analogy, I use this in my classes and in other contexts, and I think people can sort of understand, oh, yeah, we can focus on these two different questions. One question is who in particular loses out at the game, but then we can focus on the question of why is the game producing losers in the first place. This brings up the issue of redistribution efforts in government policy to promote that. Now, to certain people, this is absolute anathema. This is socialism, communism again. But you do quite a bit of comparing poverty levels in the United States versus other economically developed countries, not only in Europe, but around the world. And you use a concept of pre-tax, pre-transfer and then post-tax, post-transfer, without getting too in the woods. Talk about some of those comparisons. Yeah, without getting too, too into the woods and that. We can look at, basically, the idea is, okay, what would the poverty rates be if we didn't have any government programs at all? Kind of what I was saying with the elderly, that the elderly's poverty rate today would be about 40%. And then we can say, all right, now that we have government programs, what's the poverty rate? And as I said, for the elderly, it's around 9%. And the difference between those two numbers shows you how effective government is in terms of reducing poverty. And so when we look at other countries, Canada, Europe, as you said, other countries around the world, Australia, Japan, we can see that actually 
government programs in those countries have a pretty significant effect in reducing poverty. If you look at the Nordic countries, you see that their poverty rates before transfer might be 35%. But once you factor in government programs, they drop their poverty rates down to more like 7 or 8%. And the clear outlier here is the United States, in which we do very, very little to reduce poverty through government programs. And again, as I said, the only group really that has benefited from government programs addressing poverty has been the elderly. That's the one real success story in the United States. So this is a way to sort of let us look at what can be done and what aren't we doing in the United States compared to these other countries. And the other point here is you've mentioned this thing about this is anathema and people call this socialism and so on and so forth. But actually, what people should keep in mind is that when we invest in people, when we prevent people from falling into poverty, when we prevent children from falling into poverty, we're making an investment in our overall country. And the result is that our economy will be more innovative, more dynamic as we invest in our human resources. What we've been doing in this country is disinvesting in our human resources, whereas these other countries see the value of things like childcare and programs to prevent folks from falling into poverty. So I think that that's another way to really look at it. And actually, we, we might talk about that analysis that I did in one of the chapters that looks at the cost of childhood poverty to the United States as a whole. Well, actually, that's one of the places I was going to go. So yes, please do. Oh, great. Great. Perfect. We're on the same wavelength here. So this was a question that I and a graduate student here at Washington University looked at a couple of years ago. And the question was, what is actually the economic cost of childhood poverty in the United States? How much does it cost us to have a lot of children in poverty? And what we did is, you might imagine, trying to put a dollar value on this is difficult, but we used the best research that was available, and we basically looked at three areas in terms of cost. So we know that childhood poverty results in higher health care costs because children in poverty have more health problems. We know that childhood poverty reduces economic productivity when children become adults. They're not as productive economically if you grew up in poverty. And the final cost that we looked at was criminal justice costs, so that children in poverty are more likely to be incarcerated and to have criminal justice costs attached. And we looked at that as well. So we factored in these three elements, and we were pretty conservative in how we measured this. And what we found, and again, this could be thought of as really a very much of a lower estimate because there's all kinds of other costs that we couldn't take into account. But we came up with an overall estimate that childhood poverty in the United States was costing us on an annual basis slightly over $1 trillion a year. To put that into perspective, in, in 2015, that was about 28% of the entire federal budget. So the question is not are we paying for poverty? What we're doing is we're paying for poverty on the back end of the problem rather than on the front end of the problem. And it's always more expensive to pay for something on the back end of the problem. The other thing that we showed in this analysis was that for every dollar we would spend reducing childhood poverty, we would save between 7 and $12 down the road. And so the point of all this is to say, not only is reducing childhood poverty in the United States a country with abundant resources, the morally right thing to do, 
but it's also economically the smart thing to do as well. I want to return to the comparison with other countries for just a moment, Professor Rank. In the countries that you mentioned in Europe in particular, these systems were established at a time when the populations were much more homogeneous than they Mm. are now. Since they were established, they've taken responsibility for their former colonies in allowing immigration. And so their populations are more diverse and their politics have become increasingly polarized. Is there something briefly that you want to say about that factor? Absolutely. So research has shown that the more heterogeneous a society is in terms of race and ethnicity, the less generous are its social safety net programs. And the more homogeneous a a society is, the more generous they are. Now, why is that? One of the arguments is that because we feel more of a connection with people who look the same as us. And so in the Nordic countries and in, as you noted, in European countries that tend to be much more homogeneous in terms of race, they tend to have much more generous social safety net programs. And as they become more heterogeneous, as you note, with folks coming in from Northern Africa and other places, there's been a real reaction to that. And there's, I think, a really interesting quote that kind of gets at this that we use in the book that's from President Lyndon Johnson in 1960 before he was president. He's talking about the issue of race and how that has divided us from looking at our common interests. And he says to an aide in 1960, he says, I'll tell you what's at the bottom of it. If you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And that's exactly what has happened in the United States over and over again, is that race has been used to divide folks from seeing their common interests and from seeing that actually having a strong safety net is a benefit for all of us. So I think that that's a really, really important point for us to make here. Let's move on to inequality and the myth that there is an even playing field. And if you just work hard enough, you will attain the American dream. Yeah. Where does that take us? Okay. Okay. So, and actually, um, interestingly, I have an earlier book of mine really focused on the American dream and, and is talking about some of these issues. And so let me use another analogy here. We talked about a few minutes ago, the musical chairs analogy. Let me use this other analogy that we use when we talk about this, and that is the analogy of monopoly. The way that we like to think of the United States is just as you said, that it's an even playing field and and folks are pretty much starting out on the same, at the same point. And how you do in life depends upon your abilities and your motivation and things like that. And so I say that that sort of is the idea behind the regular game of Monopoly. We have three players. They start out with $1,500. They go around the board. People win or lose based on luck and based on their skill. But now I say, let's imagine a modified game of Monopoly, which really reflects the United States. Player one starts out with $5,000 in already properties and maybe some houses, Player two starts out with $1,500, and player three starts out with $250. Now, we're going to play the game the same way. The rules are the same. But given those prior advantages, clearly player one is going to win most of those games, 
And player three is going to lose very quickly in that game. Also, the way that the players play the game will differ given those differences in resources. So player one can take a lot of chances, make mistakes. That person is still going to do okay. Player three, if if he or she makes one mistake, the game is over. And that's really the way that we're playing the game in the United States is, is as an altered game of Monopoly. Clearly, the playing field is not level. An obvious example of that is just go to any urban area and look at the quality of public schools in affluent neighborhoods versus poor neighborhoods. Clearly, children are not getting the same quality of education. There's many other ways to look at this, but I think that that's really important. And again, it goes back to what I was saying about this is a structural failing. This doesn't have to do with people not working hard enough. This has to do with a game that's rigged and that results in some people winning big and a lot of other people losing. That brings us to the structural changes that you propose in your book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. Let's talk about some of the things you propose. Yeah. So the idea is, okay, I've been talking about these structural failings as really the root cause of poverty. Therefore, what do we suggest we do? Well, I think we need to address these structural failings. So what are we talking about here? As we've talked about in the last 30 minutes, one of the problems in the United States is that we have a lot of jobs that are low-wage jobs that don't have benefits. Okay. So let's think about ways to address that. One way, which has certainly been in the news recently, would be the idea of getting the minimum wage up to more of a livable wage, something like $15 an hour. That would help a lot of folks that are out there. We can also think about increasing people's wages through a a policy known as the Earned Income Tax Credit that gives a tax benefit to folks who are low-wage earners at the end of the year. That's also can be a very effective policy in addressing low-income workers. Professor Rink, let me interrupt you just one moment. You do a very good job in the book talking about how $15 an hour would raise people above the poverty level or at least bring them to it. However, small business owners really make a persuasive argument that if that were to happen for some of their small businesses, they would have to lay people off. Could you address that concern? Yeah, and I think that that, that's a a very real concern, um, particularly as you point out with small business owners. I think we could think about designing this policy that would provide some protection to those owners so that maybe part of that way might be coming from the federal government rather than from those small business owners. The other thing that I would say is that the big argument against this, which is related to what you're talking about here, is that if you raise the minimum wage up, what's going to happen is some employers are not going to hire as many people because they can't afford to. Well, what do we know about the research? The research has shown over the last 20 years that actually those effects turn out to be fairly small. However, I do want to point out we're talking about here a pretty significant raise in the minimum wage. So the the research that's been done has looked at the minimum wage being raised by two or three dollars. Here we're talking about the federal minimum wage is still seven twenty five an hour, which is ridiculous. There's no way you can survive on that. Raising it, basically doubling it to fifteen dollars an hour. 
So the research really hasn't looked at that magnitude of a change. But I would say that we can certainly think about ways to protect some of those small business owners, because I think you're right. I mean, in those cases, we do want to think about that. On the other hand, what you were pointing out with Walmart, this is just outrageous that a company with those kind of earnings is paying those kind of wages. They can definitely afford to pay a $15 minimum wage. There's no question about that. And as you had pointed out, what happens is people are working there at low wages and they're having to turn to government programs and all of us for support when really that should be with the employer and not with the taxpayer. We have a new administration, a little more than 100 days into the Biden administration. He's talking about job creation and infrastructure. What is your perspective on that aspect of it? Yeah, I've been very pleasantly surprised. I think the Biden administration is really thinking about, first of all, thinking about addressing these issues, which we've been sorely lacking over the last four years, but not only addressing them, but addressing them from the structural perspective. So I've been very pleasantly surprised. I think his idea of infrastructure and creating jobs is is really important. Another really interesting idea that is in the pandemic relief package and that also Senator Romney proposed, so it's interesting, kind of different sides of the aisle, was the notion of a child allowance. That's a subset of the idea of a guaranteed basic income. And the idea now is that from July of this year through through the year, folks with children will be getting something like three or $400 to help them in raising their children to provide some kind of benefit. Now, European countries have been doing this for decades, but for the United States, this is really pretty radical. The studies that have been out there have shown that this can really have an effect on reducing childhood poverty by maybe up to 30 or 40%. And again, this is a structural kind of failing that is being addressed here. So I'm quite hopeful. And I think that once people get used to the idea of this child allowance, they won't want to have it taken away. So I'm very optimistic in terms of the Biden administration. I've been very pleasantly surprised by the kinds of things that they've been proposing. We've just gone through, or we're actually still going through the ramifications of the COVID pandemic. And one of the ways that the government responded was to increase unemployment benefits. And now, I believe the Montana governor, Gianforte, was the first one to say that the increase, the $300 over what would be normal will be stopped in June and other Republican governors are following. What do you think of that approach? The the idea being that we want to get back to work, but people aren't getting back to work because they're getting too much money not working. Yeah, yeah. No, that certainly has been in the news. And here in uh, Missouri, I think we have the same thing. I think there's been 10 or 12 states that have now said we're not going to continue that. And that argument is something that we were talking about earlier earlier that maybe this is providing a disincentive to take jobs. I just heard this morning, I was listening to somebody talking about this in Washington, and what they were saying is that the, the research evidence really doesn't support that. Another way to think about this is that I was just talking about universal basic income. One of the arguments against that is that, well, it'll discourage people from working. There was a big study done in Stockton, California, a pilot study that took place over a couple of years. And what they showed was that actually the people that got the universal basic income, so kind of got this extra money, 
actually had higher rates of unemployment than people who weren't getting it. And one of the reasons was that by getting that extra money, they were really able to get the kind of job that they were looking for rather than just taking anything. And I think that that's probably a good thing. The other thing that we should think about is why maybe people aren't taking jobs is we have all these issues, for example, around childcare and not having affordable and accessible childcare. So again, this is another structural problem that we need to address. But as I said, I think the evidence is pretty weak that people are saying, well, by getting this $300, I'm not going to take a job. Most people want to be working. They want to be doing something productive. They don't want to be sitting at home. That's really what the research shows. You brought up child care, which is in the proposed infrastructure bill, and that's getting quite a negative reaction from those who believe that infrastructure is limited to physical things like bridges and roads. Anything to say on that? Well, yeah. I mean, I like the way of of thinking about infrastructure beyond just bridges and roads. I mean, I think bridges and roads are, are very, very important, and we do need to invest in them. Obviously, we've fallen behind in terms of that. But I like the broader vision of infrastructure, that it includes things like childcare and it includes things like healthcare and things like that. These are the kind of structural things. Think of it as this kind of the social infrastructure rather than the just the physical infrastructure. And the social infrastructure in the United States is incredibly weak. And it's about time that we start addressing that. And again, my point being that by doing that, we will be a more dynamic and innovative society. My American Dream book, what I said is one of the things that is really the key behind the American Dream is allowing people to pursue their passion in order to reach their potential. That's what we should be doing in terms of our social policy, is providing the tools so that people can reach their potential, whatever that might be. Well, those are good words to end our conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Professor Mark Rank, thank you so much for joining us today on Forthright Radio and for your work and producing this book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. We very much appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Joy. This was really a delight getting a chance to, to take 50 minutes and talk with you about these issues. You have just heard an interview with Professor Mark Rank about his latest book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty, co-written with Professors Lawrence M. Eppard and Heather E. Bullock. It was published by Oxford University Press in March of 2021. You can find out more about his work and check out his Poverty Risk Calculator by going to confrontingpoverty.org. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire, signing out for now.
This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.